Hi, you're about to listen to an episode of Borough Talks, a podcast from Borough Market. A very, very warm welcome to you. We're going to be bringing you a series of conversations around food and food culture with some inspiring guests and leading voices from the food industry. I'm your host, Angela Clutton. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Borough Talks. And if you do, you can subscribe for more from us. Hello, everybody, and a really warm welcome to this edition of Borough Talks. I'm Angela Clutton, and I am your host. And I'm here with three lovely people, two people who are uh, very much part of the Borough Market family, um, and somebody else who now made it sound like you're not part of the Borough Market family, which is really, really <laughs> harsh way to start the... off. You yeah. are, Emma, you are. You <laughs> certainly will be in about, you know, 30 minutes or indeed 30 seconds. Uh, so the people I was referring to, Initially, uh, are uh, the guys from Uto Beer and the Rake. We have Richard and Woody and uh, Mike slash Michael Hill. Nice to see you guys. Hi. Hello. Hi, hi, hi. Uh, you, as I say, you are you are Uto Beer and the Rake. And then Emma Inch. Hi, Emma. Hi. Um, so we're going to come to you guys to introduce ourselves um, in a little bit. But as I say, Uto Beer and the Rake and then Emma, who is a freelance uh, writer and podcaster from uh, in Brighton, majorly working in beer and cider and chair of the British Guild of Beer Writers and all kinds of things. So as you may have gathered listening in already, we are here to talk about beer and pubs and also pride because we are recording this during pride month so that's the kind of axis of our conversation um and i'm going to come to each of you just tell us a little bit about what you do how you got into this being what you do uh mike should i come to you first oh okay um yeah hi uh so uh, background i've various places i was in the army for a number of years uh and then when i left rich and i started owning pubs in and around uh, southeast South London, uh, and then went off and we sold. When the students started having to pay fees, we started deciding it wasn't the greatest business to be in. Um, and at the same time, Borough Market was starting, and we were commenting on the fact, going back to something I think we may talk about later, and we were commenting on the fact that there's a huge number, a huge number of people on Borough Market at that stage selling wine, but nobody actually selling beer. And bearing in mind the Hop Exchange was just around the corner, we approached Borough Market and suggested it would be a good place to put a beer stand on. So that's how we ended up with, with the market. And there's lots more after that, which Rich will tell you about the rake and where we went with there. That's a, that's a good segue. You got, it's not your first go doing this, is it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, no, we've, we've been doing this for nearly 25 years now. So uh, we, we've spoken to more than one yeah. person about the potted history. Um, my, uh, my name's Richard and Woody. Uh, my background is in pubs um, when, I, when I left college. Uh, I started working for a major pub chain. I went to work for hotels. Um, I've run two indie nightclubs and run a jazz club for a little while, but we managed to turn that into a not jazz club. Um, I've run some, uh, at the time, uh, we called them just gay venues because we hadn't discovered the alphabet in those days. And then when we set up Utabia, um, we did that for a few years, started doing some wholesale. Um, and a lot of our customers were saying, well, you know, where can we buy these products? Where can we get all of this? Where can we get it? So we thought, actually, let's do it ourselves. And that's what we did. We, at the time, we were probably the first of what we now call the craft beer pubs. Truly independent craft beer pubs. Yes. Um, I mean, there were some great people like Porterhouse and, and the White Horse knocking around who were doing good beer as part of a bigger package. Um, we we won a couple of awards in our first few years for craft beer. And 
We even came runner-up in the Times Unusual Business Idea of the Year Award. That is a cracking title for an award, isn't it? Which I think was slightly tongue-in-cheek when it thought, who thought we'd have ever given an award to a pub that sells beer? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but you we crazy did, cat. It was, literally. We, we sold... We didn't do... We, we did pork pies from Mrs King's at Barrow Market. Okay. How um, long have you had the rake? We are 17 years oh, next month. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, brilliant. Uh, and Emma, come to you, tell us what you do and how and how, how it became what you do. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm a, a, a writer and uh, audio maker, dabble in a bit of video as well. So, um, as you said earlier, I mainly um, write about beer and pubs and cider. Uh, I've dabbled in coffee. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I, I had a very different career for a long time. I was a, um, a frontline social worker for a long time, um, but I'd always written and uh, I've always liked beer. And uh, I started doing a, a radio show down in Brighton, on community radio in Brighton, doing a music radio show and then also did a beer radio show and then everything sort of came together really. Okay. And uh, around 10 years ago, it, I kind of carved out my little niche and... Uh, decided to sit in it. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. Uh, so I was saying just before we started to you guys that, uh, Emma, you were very much really the catalyst for us being here in this conversation together because I um, came across you and your work and I came across a series, I think it was was at Canberra that you did mm -hmm. this series for. And it's a podcast series that's basically um, three sections, passion, pride and protest. And it was about pubs more than the bread than beer it's about pubs really mm -hmm. is, is that yes fair to say? yeah um and it's absolutely fascinating and i was completely sort of taken in by the sort of greater you know purpose and meaning of these things in a way that i hadn't really kind of thought about it before so do you want to just lead us in a little bit as to what what it was that you were talking about in those yeah so i was thinking about um you know sort of the history of of gay pubs or LGBTQ plus pubs. Um, and I suppose the way I kind of came to that was I couldn't really understand uh, the pubs without thinking a little bit about the historical context and the, the sort of um, regulation and oppression of of uh, homosexuality for, for many hundreds of years. Um, and and particularly with, so when I was growing up, uh, Section 28 um, uh, legislation that prevented people sort of talking about being gay, uh, you know, the local authorities promoting um, homosexuality as a valid uh, lifestyle choice. And and so pubs kind of, uh, queer pubs to me sort of understood in that context, really. And when I started to think about what, what the pubs had meant to me over time, it was around those three areas of, of passion, pride and protest. And by that, so passion kind of mean, um, you know, in the days before the internet, that is where people went to meet people and to meet people who they might fall in love with or they might be the best friends or they might be both. Um, and so there was a lot of... <laughs> well, the, that's not what you say on the thing. You say they might they might be your great new love, they might be an idiot or they might be both. Yeah, that's right. That was Cathy Caton, actually, from Brighton Gin who gave that quote, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where we went to meet people. And, you know, when I, when I came out, I didn't know anybody else who was gay yeah. at all and I wasn't meeting them in my everyday life well you um, probably did you just didn't know exactly it because i didn't so know of anybody hadn't, else hadn't yeah exactly you're right and the place where we could be ourselves was in in lgbtq venues or gay venues um so there was that kind of element of the passion bit linked to that the pride bit and by pride uh in that series i wasn't necessarily talking about about the event pride i was talking about um 
the opposite of shame uh, and the, the way that you could be there and um, express yourself and see other people who looked like you or maybe looked like how you aspired to be but felt too embarrassed to be or um, people who could act as kind of older members of the community who sort of became a kind of chosen family sort of thing and a place where you could you could hold the hand of your partner or you could kiss somebody, you could, uh, you know, have public displays of affection that you absolutely could not have anywhere else. Uh, and then the third element of the of the series was around protests. And again, before the days of the internet, the pubs were the places where we got our news and information. And, you know, I'd go in there and pick up my, my newspapers uh, that told you kind of, uh, news that was going on in in the gay world, um, and particularly during sort of the the height of the of the AIDS crisis in the late eighties and nineties, that kind of that was where people got information about what was going on because you couldn't find it anywhere else. But it was also the place where you know sort of ideas fermented and people got together to protest and to decide how to how to take on the the inequality of the world so those those kind of three elements i think yeah. particularly for me i call it a personal history of of uh, of gay pubs but it you know it very was it was very personal but i spoke to a lot of different people and got their memories as well yeah. of um of what what queer venues had meant to them yeah. richard i'm interested because you mentioned in your little potted bio about yourself about having run mm. a couple of gay i think you said bars rather than pubs but do you connect with what emma's saying um the yes, answer no is so mine. No, no, I'm, I'm going to hazard a guess I'm probably a little older than Emma. Okay. Um, because I'd left school when uh, Section 28 came in, so but was old enough to protest about it. Um, and I think people also need to be aware that a turbocharged version of Section 28 is about or is trying to be introduced Absolutely. by this Absolutely. government for trans, and we mm. need to uh, we need to be opposing that mm -hmm. at, at every opportunity. Um, but yeah, going back to what you were saying, yes, we did. It was very, very difficult. Uh, I'm from Newport in South Wales. Uh -huh. um, it's the third largest city in Wales, but it's still not very big. We had a gay pub that was about the size of this room, which is, so <laughs> which is not small very folks. big. Yeah. Um, and we used to run one night a week, we used to run a, a well, we used to call it a lesbian and gay night because it was quite unusual. And very often, lesbians and gay men didn't uh -huh. congregate in the same venues. Um, we kind of had different, or we felt that we had different agendas. So it wasn't, and as you say, AIDS made it very much... So a, sorry, just to clarify, so you're from Newport <coughs> and that's also where you opened the place that you're just talking about? Yes. Okay, great. Um and we used to, uh, yeah, Tuesday night, we used to run a thing called Puffs and Perverts, Brilliant. Uh, which was uh, a line that we stole from a headline in, in The Sun at the time when they were trying to yeah. to decry somebody. Yeah. Um, and it was, I mean, it, I think it was marginally Pride, the film. successful. I guess you all know Pride, the film, I think. Of, I, mean, mm -hmm. I immediately think of um, Well, we, we, we were that. involved um, more through the Labour Party than obviously through the venue, yeah. but with the miners' strike. Right. Um, and obviously in south wales we did a lot yeah of course for for the miners and um, had connections backwards uh with the um w with the guys who were lgsm um i mean some of the the concert the bronski beat concert in the east end yeah. i remember going to that one oh where, wow that's amazing so. okay that's a whole other podcast we're totally doing that <laughs> 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 yes. there, there were, we, we watched the dvd and i was like God, I haven't seen him since 19... <laughs> and, it, and it 
some you know some there's, there's quite a few of the characters in there are people that that we know from back in the day. Yeah, of course. Anyway, sorry, I sent us down a different direction. You were, you were, just, you were talking about the experience of running. Um, but it, I mean, as I said, it it was pubs where you got your information. It was mm. it was things like Gaze the Word Bookshop, um, the the gay pubs that would have the newspapers. I mean, you in London you had City Limits, Time Out, Pink Paper. Outside of London, you didn't have any of those yeah. things. Um, you there may be a newsletter that somebody'd run off an old Gastetna machine. Um, it it was a very very different world, and you had yeah. to go to the pub to meet somebody, and you had to go to the pub to find anything, and you had to go to the pub to do anything. Yeah. You didn't have the internet, you didn't have um, social media, you didn't have dating apps. Yeah. So basically. If you wanted sex, you went to a gay pub. It was, you know, that's the bottom line of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, and within the, the 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 breadth of Newport community, what was that relationship like between your venue and the wider community? Um, it was a very small community, and because everybody knew everybody else, the fact that you were doing something like that, people would support it because somebody was doing it, and also. There wasn't a lot of other options. Yeah. You know, if you wanted to go out on a Tuesday night, woohoo, <laughs> there's, there's something for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, Wednesday was the big night in Newport. Newport's a very odd town. It's got a, a big music heritage. Um, and I think a lot of the genres of music tend to feed into supporting um, what at the time was the lesbian and gay community yeah. for sort of some of the um, the alternative and the goth. Yeah. Mike, how do you um, sort of connect in with this idea about um, pubs and the quick... Um, I've, I came to this whole scene very much later than everybody else. Um, having been in the army for 13 years, there were certain limitations on what I was able to do. Um, so uh, coming from the perspective where, as far as I've been concerned, the gay pub has always been there, um, certainly when I started, though the reality is whether they fulfill the same function these days i'm not i'm not so sure well that's really interesting um and i think and i think there has been a change to some extent i think it it's it's our own it's our own activities that has created that situation in that people like myself and Richard who just carry on as normal, it, it has no influence on what we do as the fact that we're gay. It's neither here nor there. We've employed people who are gay, we've employed people who are trans, we've employed lots of people. So our position's always been that we'll take anybody. If they can do the job, we'll take them on. It's never, we've never, uh, to some extent, it, it may be simply because I'm not bright enough to spot it more often than not, but I don't actually care. If somebody can do a job, that's all I'm interested in. And I think with the change an attitude about being gay and being able to go out in the public and all the rest of it I think there's the question about where does the gay pub sit now within that set of environments I find it much more acceptable I don't have any problem with anybody coming into my pub of whatever persuasion they are the only thing we have a ban on is any form of abuse of anybody and any form of racist any form of sexist any form of attack that takes place in which case we just simply don't tolerate it but beyond that I'm we're pretty reasonable. I don't have any problem with people sitting in pubs holding hands or anything like that, and I don't have an attitude to it. We won't, we won't stop it in our own venues. But I think the result of that is that some question has to ask, and maybe Emma can probably have an opinion on it more than I do, is to where does the gay bar and the gay scene sit now as a result of that? That's well, really I mean, interesting, because you know, as Rich was just saying, that you, know, you were talking about 
the, the the need and the purpose what pre apps pre internet pre you know, there's there's so much other ways of connecting that was such an, an important and powerful form of connection. So Emma, how do you feel about that? About you know, can, the, can I just the, very yes, quickly say that as a community, I think we are more integrated. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, I, certainly in big cities. I, I'm not going to speak for somebody who's in a, sure. a small town in the northeast of England, but certainly in in London and. And Brighton, um, yeah. in Cardiff, I know from experience that there is very much uh, uh, people don't care. People are like, you know, and so therefore, the Richard, are you saying you think there is a slight less of a need in inverted commas for venues which are specifically? I don't think people feel threatened in the way that they did. Maybe sort of, you know, I've been beaten senseless walking home from a gay pub in in South East London. Um, and I don't think that was was something that would happen today quite as readily as it, it did then. I think it would still happen, but I think it would have to be a set of circumstances. But I think generally I believe that there is an element of a... <sighs> don't think anything's ever secure because you can always get yourself into a set of circumstances where you are, where you are, you are the victim of whatever it is. But I think there is more awareness, and if you are around other people, you are less likely to be left isolated. Um, so, I mean, I don't know what Emma, as I say, I don't know what Emma feels about where the the, the, the scene goes today in the terms of pubs and venues. I mean, I let's know. bring you, let's bring you in on that. I mean, I think I think those points are really valid. You know, we've we're in a different world now, a world of technology. Um, I, you know, that I can't even imagine as a young lesbian how that would have been. Um, you know, if I've been growing up with all that all that sort of technology. <laughs> Um, uh, I'm not going to go down that road imagining it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we are in a in a in a, totally, a serious level. I really yeah. kind of feel for you know young people who just it's just sort of just just too much. It's just too much yeah. of everything, <laughs> and it creates obviously its own problems yeah. of how to contend and well, deal. I, th- I well, think so. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's kind of another discussion, I yeah. suppose. But um, but yeah, and and I think um, also the idea of you know yeah being integrated. I um, you know I suppose speaking for myself. When I used to visit a new city, I used to look for the gay bars. Now, when I visit a new city, I look for the beer bars. Um, and they're seldom the same place. Um, and But I would, you know, I sort of prioritise that. And But I think I think the thing about um, LGBT plus venues uh, is, um, is exactly what you've both been talking about, which is about safety. Um, mm. And that kind of lies at the bottom of... All of those things that, that that we've talked about are about how safe we feel, and um, as as um, as a uh, you know an out butch-looking lesbian woman, I spend a lot of my time thinking about my safety. I may may do it on sort of a an almost unconscious level, mm-hmm. but whenever I enter a pub, I'm thinking about: Am I safe here? Does this feel okay? And what do you mean by somebody? safe in that context? Emma? Am I going to get homophobically abused or worse in this pub? So when I open the door of a pub, I'm that's the judgment judging call you're that. Making. Yeah, okay. and it may happen very quickly. Um, and if I'm with my partner or with a friend, we may, you know, we may look at each other. Are you okay here? Is that okay? Is this, does this feel okay? And you know, and so that still happens. Perhaps not quite as much as it used to. And um, as you were saying, Richard, perhaps not quite so much in, you know, cosmopolitan cities kind mm. of thing. I suppose where where. Um, you know, perhaps there are more more different people. I think that issue of safety is still really important. And also going back to one thing you said right at the beginning, for certain members of the uh, LGBTQ 
communities that are that are perhaps safer than others at the moment and we're, we're actually doing a bit of a, a slide back as you said in terms of you know potentially a new form of section 28 um potentially um you know much more um hate crime is very much on the rise against trans people um and and those sorts of i think those sorts of environments are still important uh in order to protect people um uh, there's some really interesting work by professor Ben Kampkin at, uh, at UCL, he's a professor at UCL, um, who looked at the decline of uh, LGBTQ venues in London. Um, and between 2006 and 2017, 58% uh, loss of LGBT venues in London, which is far more than the 25% loss of mainstream venues. It's much bigger. Give us that percentage again, Emma. 58%, 58%, so much higher. So it's a huge being lost at a much higher rate. And, and a lot of that is to do with the change in I, the world. I think some of that, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm going to throw a bit at you from, from experience that we've seen, some of that is because a lot of LGBT venues tended to be late-night venues. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has been NIMBYs yeah. coming in and going, oh, yeah, you're really there's, noisy. There's a lot of reasons for it. And, and, yeah, and I think they also ended up... They, a lot of LGBTQ venues were in areas that were maybe um, on the edge kind of thing, which are now, as you say, being gentrified, mm. uh, being kind of very, very much changing, so that they were kind of vulnerable. So there's a lot of different reasons. But one thing that, that has also been found in amongst that is there's still the importance of venues like that, particularly for young LGBT people who may not feel, uh, I think Ben's phrase is, as safe as at... They may not feel as at home at home. So depending on who they're living with, who they're whether it's, uh, you know, family or, or flatmates or something like that, they may not feel as safe in their home environment and still those sort of venues still have a, a real purpose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But also, you, you, I think your, your statistic masks something because we've not drilled down onto the reality of the venues that have closed. The venues that have closed have tend to be the independently run ones that were doing something different and, and people who were from the community themselves and who cared and wanted to be part of things. The ones that have survived are Compton's, which is owned by Bass. You've got you know, the Admiral Duncan. I know we all support the Admiral Duncan because of what's happened there. However, it's still a pub that's owned by a major chain, mm. and many of those venues are on Old Compton Street. So a lot of the, the, the venues that have remained are in big businesses' oh. hand. Well, I was thinking about that you know, was, you know, planning this and thinking about outside, obviously London is its own thing and, and, and indeed the other major cities that we've talked about, but thinking about how we all feel that high streets up and down the country are becoming so much the same oh. as each other and losing so much identity. The, and therefore I, the I impact feel that the beer, this. I mean, I had to step back for a, a few years I haven't come back into craft beer and gone, this, this has become so homogenised. You know, right. every craft beer bar you go into has got all the same products on. Nothing wrong with any of the products they're selling. Don't don't get me on that one. But they are all selling the same mm. products. Mm. I blame Brexit because the number of importers has has reduced and everybody's going, oh, well, we're going to be safe. We're going to sell that because we know yeah. everyone likes Beavertown, Heineken. We know everybody likes Camden, AB InBev. Let's really get into that, Richard, about uh, craft beer and uh, identity and those things. Like, like, I do think that's really interesting about how the beer scene has changed and maybe talk a little bit as well if you if you think it's interesting i'm wondering about sort of you know macho perceptions of beer and to what extent they still exist or not do you want to start us off richard on this kind of beer track 
no, I don't think beer is a, a particularly macho thing. Um, but do you I, think there was a point where it was trying to be marketed as that? Yes. I mean, certainly when I was growing up and, and Double Diamond and Albright and Welsh Bitter and all, you know, they were a man's drink. Yeah. Um, you probably couldn't get away with saying that now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think that's what I mean, really. But then we've seen things go the other way. We're, with Cause, marketing, we're, we're marketing beer for the ladies. It's pink and fruity. Um, and I'm thinking, actually, there's probably a lot of gay men that would like that more yeah. than... Um, and we, certainly in our own pub, we, we've seen you know, somebody come up to the bar, half pint of something light and a pint of imperial stout, please, and the pint glass goes to the woman. Yeah. So I, I don't think there's, there's a, a real difference. That's I mean, Again, I, I remember a day when somebody, a friend of mine's mother, um, took a pub to court because he refused to serve pints to women and she lost. Okay. So that's, and that yeah. was only in the 80s. Yeah, okay. So I suppose that's what I kind of sort of meaning in a way, the sort of arc of, of, of things. I mean, I think part of the change to me, though, is I think you need to go back a stage almost. And I think you need to ask what was offered to the public. Mm-hmm. And I think the reality is with the growth of the independent craft scene within the UK and the amount of independent breweries there are now, and the ability those brewers have to produce a different variety of beer from what was generally the mainstream beers in the, in the even the 70s and 80s, I think that the reality is there's much more choice. Now, with much more choice comes much more open in that more people can try something and will find something they like and therefore are more likely to progress down that line of, oh, well, I had that beer from those people last time. I'm going to try it again next time. So I think... I think the fact that the brewing industry has so dramatically changed over the last 15, 20 years is probably the reason why there is so much more choice. I think that who drinks it? Well, I think that's, I think what is better is that people have no, I don't see any definition between um, you're a bloke and therefore you've got to drink uh, a dark, heavy, bitter, cask bitter, as against somebody who will come in and drink one of our... So we've got a German beer that's uh, a, a beer called Schofferhofer, Schoffer, Schoffer, which is a 2.5% grapefruit beer. I cannot shift more than you would believe it in a craft beer pub, but it's drunk by people who are very serious beer drinkers, but they want something light and refreshing during the summer. So the, I think the, I think the big change is that where bars, in order to operate properly, you've got to have the choice for people. You've got to be able to offer gluten-free. You've got to be able to offer low alcohol. You've got to be able to offer what the customer wants. And I think that's always been the case. I think the problem now is there's an awful lot of choice out there. Yeah, yeah you can't get away with, have you got anything low alcohol? Calibre. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, I think there is still an issue with... with um, with sexism in beer, um, and that I, I think it was, uh, I don't know, it was last year or the year before, probably, um, a lot of, there was kind of a reckoning in craft beer, a lot of women came forward with stories of sexism, um, some horrific stories of, of um, uh, sexist abuse and sexual assault within the industry. Um, so there was, you know, there's been some looking at that. Um, we still get the odd, you know, bit of advertising that's really doesn't is off the mark as well it's getting better but I mean it was only 2019 I think when when camera said we're not having any um at the you know uh, Great British Beer Festival they said we're not allowing any sexist pump clips um on the bars any any beers with sexist names 
um, or racist names or anything like that. Um, and that seemed pretty reasonable, but there was a massive hoo-ha about it. Um, really? It was all over breakfast television. People saying, I want to keep People my People saying that, it, yeah, that they, they wanted to keep their... You know, I'm not even going to name any of no, the beers. No, 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 but, but, uh, but, but people, but, but, people they feeling it was... They wanted to keep it because they felt their market <clears throat> would be disappointed if it well, was Or even just your average person who wasn't involved in the beer industry at all felt that it was some kind of infringement on their rights on their to right drink, to, have, to, yes, to be able to okay. say a very sexist or suggestive name to a person behind the bar when they're asking for their drink. I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't can't get into sure. that mindset yeah. of yeah. how people think. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it created a massive storm, just something like that. So, uh, and, you know, and, and, and you know, women, um, you know, constantly report things at beer festivals or in pubs that are happening that are, uh, you know, kind of not okay sort of thing. Um, I, you know, I think... I perhaps, well, I do walk through the world different to a younger feminine presenting straight woman. Um, and I think, it's, you know, depending on how we walk through the world, we have different experiences, sure. don't we? Um, I don't, of myself, don't tend to, to get stuff, too much stuff like that. But I do sometimes think, particularly in the beer world, when I'm talking about about something that I might know about and I get dismissed. I do sometimes get that horrible feeling that a lot of women get. I wonder if you'd have said that if I was a man. Yeah. I wonder if you would, but I can't challenge that because it's too tenuous. So I think there is still there is still stuff around. Um, I count myself lucky that I don't experience a lot of that sexism. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's... I hope that it's something that, that the industry is looking at and working on. That's my hope. Yeah. Uh, and I guess we'll see in a few years. Yeah, stay the same. Yeah. But it's it's something that men need to challenge as well. Absolutely, and, 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 yeah. And, and, and you buy in for things. So you, you you just say no, I'm not accepting that, or, mm. we're, or we won't put a pump clip on for that either. No, we won't put pump clips on. We have a very very rigorous. But, um, but I, I, yeah, I've, I've been to trade shows and a couple of uh, a couple of male reps have said. Oh, has anyone seen Melissa Carl? I'm going to find her because I find that offensive and I'll get her to say something. Mm. Why don't you say something yourself? Yeah. Be a man. Mm. <laughs> why are you waiting for women to say something? Because for a lot of people, if you are going to be sexist and a woman comes and complains about it, they will pat you either on the head or on the butt. Um, they're not going to take any notice of you. When men start coming up and saying, that's offensive, I am not buying your product until you do something about that, then they might go, oh, hang on, mm. that's my target market. Yeah. Um, Which is, call it, 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 of course, entirely incorrect and it shouldn't have to happen like that. But the reality is, and I think that rather illustrates what Emma's saying, is that rather illustrates that we're still in that position. I think we're in a tra I think we're in transit at the moment. Mm -hmm. I think we're in a change. I think some of the stuff that was done about some of the behaviour of some of the breweries and some of the companies in the past has been quite rightly brought to task. I think it is less likely to happen now without somebody being called up on it fairly quickly, which is a good thing. Um, I still think, as Richard says, though, the reality is there is still slightly a dominance of of people of my age, old, white, middle-class men, I'm afraid, and unfortunately we should be quietly sent to the side and told <laughs> to carry on with our beer, but really there, we don't have an opinion about what the, 20, what the 20s and 30s want to drink. It's not our right, to be frank, and, I'm, and I really do think that some of us should be less vocal about our opinion about pump clips, frankly. Let's think uh, about the borough area just quickly, because I'm, I'm interested in this, because you... Uh, 
because the 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 Southwark Borough area where Borough Market sits, you know, has a very long and proud brewing heritage. Um, not so much now, but you know, very much you know, going back a little bit. And Mike, you mentioned at the top about the Hop Exchange almost being a catalyst for mm. you being at Borough Market. So the Hop Exchange was slash is because the building still exists, like literally around the corner from the market. So um, it was at one stage had the largest glass ceiling, single pane glass ceiling in Europe, um, but that would disappear in the wall. Though they do have intentions of putting it back on. Yeah, I think that. Don't forget there was also um, what was the name of the brewery next door, Richard? Barclay yeah. Perkins. Barclay Perkins was there, which then became Courage at the end of the day. So if you think that between the edge of Borough Market and Blackfriars Bridge, in essence, that was all a brewery. All of that was a brewery. The whole of that site was the Courage, it was the Barclay Perkins, and then the Courage Brewery. Oh, you mean literally? Literally, literally. I mean, I had when we first, when we had pubs at, yeah. Well, then there was the second brewery at Tower Bridge. There was the Sam Smith Brewery at Tower Bridge. Well, that was a Courage Brewery as well. Initially, I think. I'm going to be corrected by many people over this historical <laughs> fact. A, a but, brewery. A brewery. Yeah, but, yeah, Barclay, yeah, yeah. But, but the one thing I do know is that Barclay Perkins, and the much more amusing story, in my opinion, is the chap, we used to have an old chap who used to drink in one of our pubs in Elephant and Castle, who, was, who originally worked, when he first started working, he worked on the drays with a horse, not with a lorry, with a horse. And he can remember going into Barclay Perkins, being sent by his mum, to Barclay Perkins to pick up his her Guinness for when she was pregnant with us with his sister, and that was back in the in the 1920s, 1910s, 1920s, I think. So it's always been a very strongly area, been connected with brewing and with the brew and with the brewing industry, and that's and clearly that's why the Hop Exchange was put where it was. And the other reason was it was south of the river, and it was a lot of a lot of hops were grown in Kent. Therefore, it was a logical perfect place to place do to the come, exchange. Perfect place to yeah, come it in. It was the perfect that? place to do the exchange. Yeah. So I think um, that, that's a, it's, an, it's an amazing building. And if you get a chance to look underneath it and to see where all the hot pockets were stored and things, it's definitely worth a, a visit in, that, in those circumstances. I, and I think that's the historical limit. There's lots of stories, you know. Um, Samuel, did, Samuel Johnson was there. He was involved with one of the people who owned one of the breweries. There's, there's hundreds of stories around there. And, there's, uh, and it's a fascinating area for, for all that. And, I, and Porter. Porter, <laughs> I'm going to get this story. Go on, in. go yeah. on, go on. I'm keeping It is alleged. <laughs> um, it is alleged that Porter, uh, Porter is regarded as, as coming from London and then moving down, down to Bristol. Um, but they say that originally Porter was a, a, a blend of fresh ale and stale ale with a dash of strong ale on the top to uh, mask the flavour of yeah. the predominantly stale ale. And that was sold cheap to market porters because the market porters were paid in market money uh -huh. and it was a way of getting rid of the, the stale beer for unruly publicans. And hence it became yeah. porter and That's then stronger versions of it, stout porter, which is where you get stout yeah. from. And uh, every market in London claims that it... It was their pub. Oh, but, okay. Can we really claim it as being ours? Well, we're at Borough, so we're claiming no, we're it claiming us. It. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fair enough. Fair Why enough. not? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm guilty of just like beetling around the Borough Market area in a minute because it's, you know, there's, always, there's always lots going on and there also there's a lot of people there and beetling through. And it was only really sort of stopping and thinking and getting ready to talk to you guys today about the Hop Exchange, thinking, do you know what? I, I don't stop and look up enough. 
at the area that sits around the market and take in just how much of the kind of heritage brewing and otherwise, but obviously, as you just pointed out, so much of it is the brewing heritage just sits around. Mm. It's really important, especially in London, is it just like look up and just see mm. what's... It's interesting, if you look across the road, if you come out of Borough Market's front entrance and look across the road towards the George, uh -huh. if you look at one of the buildings there, you will still see that there's a building there that says Hop Factor on the outside in stone. And the, and the original facing is still there from the hop factors. What's the hop factor? So a hop factor was the person who actually negotiated the price on the hops. So he was the person who, um, so he was the person who bought the hops and sold the hops. So he was the intermediary between the farmer and the brewer. And there's still and there's still hop factors are up there. You can still see them. A, a, an early incarnation of Muntins. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just love that, that London just changes around it. Again, it goes back to conversation I mean, we had it's, before. It's interesting. I mean, it's, you've got the market porter there with its market hours, with its market licence. I mean, you know, the fact it was there because it was a market and therefore and therefore, it was an attractive place. But actually, there's another... One of the other things, interesting, direct, indirect result of it, is one of the reasons why some of the clipping exchanges for, for newspaper clippings ended up in and around Southwark was A, because they were close to Fleet Street and therefore where things were printed, but also one of the reasons why I know one of the clipping agents was there, because they had the market porter where they could go at six o'clock in the morning when they'd finished work and have a beer. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the thing, isn't it, with marketing? A lot of the nurses from Guy's. Um, right. Well, yeah. But I love it. It's so knitted into the identity, the community of you know, of the whole of London. Yeah. And I just, I love, and, and I, th I think you can still, I don't know, maybe I'm overly romantic about this, but I still sort of feel, I can feel the energy a little bit as I kind of walk through the market, especially early in the morning or night. There's something around the cobbles and the steel that somehow, yeah. somehow still fizzes a bit. And the numbers at the pubs that are around there that are so historic as well. So you mentioned yeah, the George, George briefly, didn't you? The, you were the galleried sort of... Um, um, coaching house, you know, one of the only galleried ones, I think the only one the left only in London, left isn't in London. it? Um, and that's just a beautiful place to go and have a drink just behind, you know, off Borough High Street. Um, and next door to that would have been the Tabard, I think, uh, which is where all Chaucer's pilgrims met before they, they walked down to um, Canterbury. So, yeah, it's full of history. There's a fantastic book, actually, by Pete Brown, um, called Shakespeare's Local, which is sort of based around the George pub that's um, you sort of the whole history of the pub, but also brings in the whole history of, of the borough and Southwark oh, area, which is fascinating, kind of looks at it through, yeah. through the years, hangs it on that hook. When we made the application for liquor licence on the rake, um, we discovered that it had been a pub prior to us taking over, which explained when... Because when we got into the cellar, it was like... There would be a beer drop there. Oh, That's okay. exactly the. And um, it turned out that it used to be called. Was it the King's? Yeah, the, the King's, uh, King's Head or John? Yes, it was. Um, and we can date that back to the 1800s when it was the whole of Winchester Walk was um, slum tenements. I think we would use tenements. <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, so uh, when we we were applying for this, obviously you get the usual thing. Oh, you turn pub. No, lots of objections. And one of the local councillors said, isn't it nice to see a couple of local lads reopening an old pub? Oh, nice. Um, and I thought that was... Yeah, yes. yeah, that was brilliant. And um, I think that will become the, the, you know, the, the new history, won't it? The way that you, you run the rake and the way that you're so embedded in, in kind of, you know, the Bermondsey gang, you know, that you, you were at the beginning of, of kind of when, when craft beer, for want of a different, better phrase, um, appeared in London. You've got your wall where brewers come in and sign, sign the, the wall. wall. Yeah, and, exactly. Um, you know, sort of that that's the new kind of yeah. history of, of yeah. brewing and beer in that area. Yeah. Um, we're going to have to wind up, I'm afraid. But before we do, um, I didn't prep you for this question at all. So my apologies to whoever has to answer this first. She's just looking at Emma. Uh, what's your favourite beer at the moment? 
So you guys have got some time to think about it. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so. Oh, it's an awful question. I know, sorry. Because it's, you know, my favourite beer is, you know... Yeah, you go. I had a beer... I had a beer... I had a beer... I was doing interviewing yesterday the day before. I was doing some interviews at, at Tap East, which is well, our, which is our brew pub over in Stratford, and I was doing interviews, and I actually had a beer that I really liked, but it was the only, it was only a beer that I'd have a, a, a probably two thirds of a pint of, and I only have one, but it was the perfect beer for the circumstance I were in, and that was the Tatsiki from Orbit. Their sour cucumber, cucumber tatsiki beer. Absolutely the right beer for the time. It was a hot, it was hot and sunny. I'd just been working for doing a whole series of interviews and I wanted something really refreshing and sharp. And the tatsiki from Orbit, perfect beer for that, just for then. Not a beer I'd necessarily go back to, but just perfect for that event. Nice. Richard? Actually, it's kind of difficult to disagree with that because that is a beer that you do do seek out. Um, I um I'm actually one I've been enjoying quite a lot recently is Great Beyond, who are a new brewery up in um, Hackney, well Hoxton, uh, more and he does a four percent hazy, which um, if you spend an afternoon or an evening in their tap room is um is very good. That sounds very nice, Emma. I've decided now. Great. Um, but, you know, ask me in 10 minutes, it'll be something different. That's but perfect. I thought, as we've been talking about Porter, um, the uh, Ansbach and Hobday London Black, which, which is, uh, uh, you know, Ansbach and Hobday started in Bermondsey, and uh, they, uh, they're they brewing this, uh, This I think it's, four, is it 4.4%, same percentage as Guinness? Uh, it's a nitro, nitro, nitro porter, so it pours creamy like Guinness, but it's, it's, um, it's a different drink, entirely different drink, in that it's, uh, got so much uh, roasted flavours, chocolate flavours, massive uh, flavours in this part. And I love Anspach and Hobday anyway, they make a very good beer. But that's, uh, you know, this London black becoming a the, the porter of London, kind of reclaiming porter for London kind of thing. Okay, yeah. definitely going to look those out. Oh, you'll, you'll find that in almost any pub. Yes, right, okay. Yeah, okay. It's, it's They're doing very, very well with it, yeah. Beer yeah. Thank you ever so much for coming along. Lovely to see you, Richard, Emma, Mike. Uh, thank you. Really, really great to talk to you. Um, and thank you all for joining us for this edition of Borough Talks. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back with more Borough Talks soon. You can still enjoy the best of Borough at Borough Market Online with nationwide delivery. You can head to our website for more information, subscribe to our newsletter. There are lots of recipes and features on the Borough Market traders.